Hello everyone, my name is Phil Agnew and you are listening to Nudge, a podcast dedicated to revealing the science behind marketing. Now if you've listened to an episode of Nudge before, you will realise that it follows a similar theme. Typically, I present a cognitive bias, I share studies about it, and then I speak to marketers or researchers who have an understanding of who we are and how we make decisions and and how we shift behaviour, essentially how we apply all that theory. I'd say the vast majority of examples shared on this show talk about the successful application of nudges in the wild, and, well, we don't tend to focus on the failures. But that doesn't mean they don't happen. This field of work certainly isn't foolproof. I discovered this myself a few months back. I was trying to get people to stay subscribed to my email newsletter, specifically people who had signed up to my science of marketing course. So I sent this group of people an email and I tested in this email two subject lines. One subject line had social proof in it. It said that most science and marketing students sign up for weekly insights. Are you in? And the other was just a normal control. I didn't think it would put much effort into it. So I just said, want to receive scientific marketing insights straight into your inbox? Question mark. And that was the header. Now, there are hundreds of studies that tell me that the social proof version should work better. It should get a higher open rate. It should get fewer unsubscribes. But as I shared on an earlier episode, it didn't. The social proof version had a 46% open rate, whereas the control had a 71% open rate. Nudges, they don't always work. Studies in the lab don't always replicate in the field. And that's what today's guest is here on the show to talk about. podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. Um, My name is Jason Collins and I I describe myself as a behavioral economist, although I'm I'm probably many pieces. I used to be a lawyer, um, got bored of law and because I realized I wanted to know what the law should be, changed myself to an economist, and then very quickly realized that economics was a fairly thin, <laughs> thin in some ways, science itself. And that led me into uh, behavioral economics. And 
I did a PhD, you know, combining evolutionary evolutionary biology and economics. That was my way of trying to get myself into a real understanding of, you know, what underlies economics, how do humans make decisions? And while I was doing that, I, I in some ways slipped into working in this space, consulting to companies or actually around helping them think about how their customers make decisions or for government, how citizens make decisions. And that's what I still do today. Today, I work largely around consumer financial decision-making. So how how can we help people make better decisions about their financial future? Those financial companies that Jason works with need to make reliable decisions. A failure for them won't result in a few unsubscribers like me. No, for them, it could result in millions of dollars lost. Jason, therefore, is rigorous in his application of behavioural economics and has strong views on how reliable it actually is. I think there's several ways to think to think about the reliability of behavioural economics. And one of them is just around the, the, you know, the reliability of the science itself. So if you read a paper that comes out of the academic literature, how much can, can you trust it? And we know the answer to that for a lot of papers is not very much now due to the you know, what's known as the replication or reproducibility crisis, where many papers across basically the you know, broader field of behavioral science, areas such as social psychology, simply haven't replicated when people have run the same study again. So that's sort of like in some ways problem, problem number, number one. Happy to <laughs> dig into that more. But problem number two for me is also around when you take a study and then you go to take it into a new context. And quite often this, this is taking a study from the lab out into the real world. And that is a much bigger leap than a lot of people realize. So when you find a, what seems to be a flaw in human judgment and in a quite artificial situation, um, and then say, look, I'm seeing this everywhere. That's why, that's why people are behaving this way in, in, in certain you know, external circumstances. I think it, that, that's a really big call to make and something that you know, behavioral economists, behavioral scientists should be reluctant to make. So I really wanted to know what we should look out for. What are some of the examples of nudges failing to replicate? And I guess importantly, are there common themes amongst these failures that we can spot, that we can look at and say, oh, that's something that doesn't replicate or something I should look out for or makes me distrust this piece of research? So here's Jason explaining what we should look out for. Sure. So think about i guess the classic psychology study and and this is happening less now but the way it used to occur is a you know a psychology professor or the like um would wheel in you know say 30, somewhere between 30 and 100 undergraduate students quite often closer to 30 than 100 put them into a into a room and get them to do some task that's designed to to elicit an effect and so to give one classic story which i'll use as a, a thread through this um, research by John Barge and friends where they got people in a room and they had them uh, solve word puzzles and some of the people had word puzzles which but, but include, included words relating to old people such as grey or Florida, that kind of thing. And unbeknownst to the participants, um, the purpose of that um, exercise wasn't for them to, you know, I guess the word puzzles itself. It was that they timed their walking speed as they left um, that exercise walking down a hall. And the initial finding from that study was that people walked slower if they'd been primed with these ideas uh, around older people. So, you know, seeing the word Florida or gray or other words such as that in these word puzzles. And so that sort of, you know, little cutesy kind of setup is, is really common across psychology experiments. A, a task with a small number of people, quite typically a very um, small slice of the population. 
Now, the idea behind the replication crisis is that you know, if this is really a, a substantial finding, like something that's robust, you should then be able to take another group of people and put them through the same experiment and find the same result. And so the heart of the replication crisis is basically that when people started to take these studies, get, well, effectively run them again, and quite often with larger numbers of people, because you need a large number of people to detect small effect sizes, which is probably what you'd expect from a lot of these studies. And what they found when they run these studies again, so many of them, there's simply no effect there. So that study of the people walking slowly, um, which is, you know, the, the effect became a classic known as the Florida effect. Um, and so you, a lot of the early um, behavioral economics texts would talk, would talk about, about that. Uh, so I think thinking fast and slow among them. And basically, just not, in, in the end, there was just not, nothing there. And this, this happened again and again and again. So there was one uh, large study pub published in, in Science um, by Brian Nosick and friends where they did uh, looked at about, I think it was 100 exactly, uh, 100 uh, psychology studies. And the replication rate was, I don't remember the exact number, it was 30 something percent. So 30 something percent of the studies, you know, when they ran it again, they found this, the, found that the result actually held. And, and this isn't just limited to psychology. So um, economics has a similar problem, perhaps not as serious. In fact, a lot of medical research even has been found to have a bit of a replication crisis. So in the psychology space, like, what was interesting is you know, in some ways the differences between the studies that um, were robust and not. And, and so the studies that really probably were the least robust were an area called social psychology, where you know, these studies such as priming, so around you know, external factors, how do they affect your behavior? The priming literature is just now the poster child for, for failed uh, replications. This idea you can plant a subtle idea in someone's mind um, and then you know, that will have a major change in their behavior. And I suppose as, as a as a, you know, perhaps a lot of this audience of this podcast being marketers, it's quite, it's quite, quite interesting because I think a lot of marketing in some ways relies on, on, on that idea of priming to try and get people to, you know, effectively take an action and how much of that is, you know, I think the question, question how much of that is going to be actually a, a robust effect. There are a few really important themes that we should all look out for when judging how reliable a study is. The first thing that Jason mentioned is that small sample size. This is probably the biggest red flag. If a study only has a couple of dozen people involved, that's something to look out for. The next is only researching a small slice of the population, usually just one demographic. Now this gets me thinking back to that social proof failure I shared at the start. Now I class that as a failure, but on reflection, I don't think I had the sample size that I even needed to make that judgment. The email only went out to a few hundred people, and they're obviously not the most diverse group of people, with most being English-speaking marketers. These are the warning signs that we should all look out for when assessing the reliability of behavioural science. Now, priming is a nudge that seems especially shaky. We've spoken about this before on the show. And it's not a surprise, right? The idea that really subtle external factors can have such a dramatic impact on our behaviour just seems fanciful. And that's, that's because it is. Here's Jason with another example. So the other, other examples out there, which I think are quite interesting, such as the idea that you put dollar bills around and it leads to people uh, exhibiting uh, you know, more greedy behaviour, like you know, having the dollar sign around. You know, giving people, you know, getting people to read an honor code before they do a um, do, do a test, similar sort of thing where that you know initial studies say great to reduce cheating, sort of replications to show there's no effect there. So pretty long tail of um, failures and not a lot of great robust replications that you could point to to say okay here's here's a particular 
uh, effect that I'd be, be confident about. But it's not just priming. There are plenty of other examples of biases that appear prevalent inside the lab that simply can't be replicated in the real world. One of the most illuminating examples comes from NBA and the hot hand theory. So let me tell a little bit of, I suppose, a story about one particular study, which I think is just wonderfully illustrative, and I use this in the, in the Nudge Stock talk. So one quite robust finding in the lab is that people tend not to have a great sense of what randomness looks like. So if you ask them to write a sequence of coin flips and to basically mimic randomness when they write out that sequence, they'll actually alternate far too often. They, they won't have enough streaks of, you know, say, heads and tails. So really robust lab finding, that one. But then you go, well, what happens when we start, you know, look, look, looking, well, looking at the outside world, start looking at what ha- happens um, when people are seeing, you know, streaks uh, in real life. What, what do they think? And so in sports, we've got the idea of the hot hand. And that's the idea that when someone shooting a basketball, could, could be, um, I guess, kicking goals, in, it's like whatever it might be, that we describe people as being, being hot. And the question is, are they really, really hot? Like, so if someone, when they're shooting a basketball, is this really just a random sequence? They've got the same probability of every shot. Or if uh, over time, do they, um, you know, do they hit one and then are they more likely to hit further shots? And so as far as athletes are concerned and most people watching sports are concerned, they'll say that there's a hot hand here. They'll, they'll, they'll believe this isn't a random pattern they're seeing. This is actually something quite streaky. So Three quite um, well-known you know, behavioural economist psychologists, Thomas Gilovich, Robert Ballon, and Amos Tversky, they went to have a look at this and they got shot data from a couple of you know, NBA basketball teams and they looked at it and said, you know, is there a hot hand in this data? And so if someone had made a shot, are they more likely to hit subsequent shots? And the result of their examination was they basically said, no, there's there's nothing there's nothing there. There is no such thing as a hot hand. This was another example of the phenomena that they'd seen in the lab. People had a really poor sense of what randomness looks like, and they were seeing uh, streaks and patterns where it was it was actually just a, just a random pattern. And this result, when it came out, was just I guess people just didn't believe it. So there's plenty of great quotes from from you know, various basketball coaches and the likes, you know, where they said, I'm not going to take this on board. You know, I, I know a hot hand when I see one, basically. And so part of the story almost became around, not just around how people see a hot hand when one doesn't exist, it also became a story of how once they were shown the truth, they were unable to, to accept it. And that was the case for about 30 odd years. And then this is what the, the real twist in this story is Joshua Miller and Adam Sanherho um, basically went back and looked at the, uh, the initial studies. So this initial study by Gilovich, Volon and Tversky and realized that sort of made a, a subtle error in their analysis. And it's, it's really quite tricky as to how, you know, trying to explain this particular error, but there was basically a bias in the way they examined that data. And so when you actually examined it, you know, correctly, they found that there actually was a hot hand. And this was such a strong hot hand that the different, you know, to give one, one example, whether I was describing the magnitude, someone who had shot three, got three previous shots in and basketball in the NBA in this particular data set, they would be 13 percentage points more likely to get the next shot in than if they'd had three previous misses. So really strong, strong hot hand. That, that's the sort of difference has been, you know, is between the average shooter in the NBA and the very best. So quite substantial. So it's kind of this funny story where, you know, Initially, they think, look, you humans are foolish. Look, we've seen in the lab. Now we've come out and found in real life. 
you don't believe us. And then, and then really, you know, fought against the fans. But as it turned out, the, the average fan in the stands, um, the coaches in the basketball, the players, they were actually the ones with the better sense of what was happening than, than the academics. It's a great example from Jason. And it got me wondering, are there any nudges or biases that we're using today that we're certain are working right now and appear to be getting results that will only be proven to be non-existent in 30 years? I asked Jason. I think there's probably not too many will have to wait 30 years. So to be fair to you know, Gilovich, Volon and Tversky, the, the error that they made was quite subtle. I think a lot of the, the, the work now that's going to, I guess, fall apart, it's going to fall apart on a smaller time scale. And you, you mentioned earlier that you know, piece of work around the, um, the idea that placing a signature at the beginning of, say, you know, the initial research was around insurance claim forms, but you know, it's been applied to all sorts of places such as terms and conditions. But this idea where, where that can prime honest behaviour, where people will then you know, be more likely to you know, give an honest answer at the, you know, when, when they're, when they're you know, answering subsequent questions. And that, I think, I think it was, was less, less than 10 years there for, for something to basically a, a result, very fat, famous sexy result with a lot of actual what's going to be practical application but what happened there is quite quickly people went out and tried it and it just didn't work and so it was quite you know it was only a few years after it sort of the initial result that people were there sort of looking at their results going why isn't this panning out and then you know the you know a, a group of um, academics sort of went to the original authors and together they you know did a but we both looked at the original data and said, hang on, maybe that wasn't quite as well analyzed as we thought, but also generated uh, some new new data and said, okay, that there's, there's actually nothing here. I think that's the sort of cycle that I, at least that I hope we'll have for a lot more of this, this research is you know, quite rapid you know, testing of, of them. If, like me, you're keen to test out behaviour science in your work, then make sure you're running tests, tests that allow you to really assess the performance of the nudges you're using. I've ranted on this show about the power of social proof, but that doesn't mean I use it blindly. I always make sure to run A-B tests to at least attempt to assess the effectiveness of the bias I'm testing out. But say we hear about a brand new bias. Should we get started right away and test that out on our audience? Or should we wait for the professionals to replicate the studies first? In that case, it's a real, I guess, cost-benefit analysis there. So think about a, a, a Google who have, I guess, I'd be pretty some astounding number of eyeballs every day. And you know, they could probably run tests very quickly, cheaply. And all of those tests, are, well, they're, around, they're around whether someone clicks on an ad or not or you know, what they do on a search engine or how they interact with their Android phone, whatever it may be. But they're fairly, you know, I guess, innocuous uh, results a lot of the time. So, so when you can go, we can run something quickly, the potential harm is low, the cost is low. Like that, that's, to the extent you can be running a real production line of experiments there, that's great. And, and in fact, they're what, you know, the way you think of it is people can come up with even just, just random ideas, not even out of academic papers. Like, it's, and that's, that's what happens, I suppose, in a lot of marketing and, in fact, just you know, A-B testing coming out of customer experience labs. They just go, oh, this will be an interesting idea. Let's give it a crack. And that, that, that's great. But then you've got a lot of other ideas where it's simply not as easy a, a task to, um, to actually go out and, and test it. And so going back to that story of, of the signing at the top of the form. So, you know, that sort of thing, there's probably some scenarios where it's easy to do, but like a lot of the scenarios where it was tested, you know, 
organizations had to go through and redesign forms or digital processes, actually quite expensive experiments and a lot of resources were, were wasted there. So I think it's probably you know, some sort of, sort of filter that just needs to be applied to going, you know, ultimately, can, can we test this efficiently, quickly or, or not? This is great advice for marketers. If you can, run a quick test where the sample size is large and the resource isn't too great. And that's what I've done with Social Proof. You can go back and listen to the Nudge Experiment episode on Social Proof, where I talk about the Reddit ad that I put out, which tested a Social Proof version of that ad side by side with a control. The only thing changed was the image to really nail in and make sure that we were testing Social Proof. And I was able to get some results that quite clearly showed me that the Social Proof version had a higher click-through rate and a higher effectiveness. And that was only by spending about $108, but actually really reaching an audience of 200,000 people. So you could get quite conclusive results. But as Jason says, don't just take this as gospel, go and test it out for yourself. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. It was great fun chatting with Jason. He's a brilliant behavioural and data scientist with a much-needed critical look at the world of behaviour science. If you want to keep up to speed with Jason, you can do so by checking out his blog. That's jasoncollins.blog, Jason Collins being all one word. And I've left a link to that in the show notes, so you can click on that to check it out. I've really enjoyed putting this episode together, in particular sharing some of the small tests I've run myself. And if you've enjoyed hearing about that, then please do go back and listen to that uh, four-episode mini-series that I did recently, which really talked through some of the tests that I've been running to test the validity of nudges. You can email me if you've got any feedback about the show. Um, I'm phil at nudgepodcast.com or you can reach out to me on Twitter at P underscore Agnew there. I'm also on LinkedIn at Phil Agnew. I'd love to hear from you and love to get some feedback. I'll be back in two weeks for another episode of Nudge and make sure you sign up to the emailing list to make sure you don't miss that. Simply click the link in the show notes to sign up. And that is all we've got time for today. So cheers again and thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge. Thank you.